Hello and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here as always with Victor Davis Hansen, the Morton and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, it is our fate apparently to return over and over again to the topic of Donald Trump. Now, uh, as of this recording, clearly the front runner for the Republican presidential nomination, maybe a stretch to call him the presumptive nominee, but certainly a label that fits him better than any of his rivals. You and I are recording this the day after an absolutely brutal debate in Detroit where Trump and Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio were all sort of down in the dirt with each other. Were Trump any other politician, we'd say that he was embarrassed enough last night that he was done. But no one will do that anymore because they've seen just how little normal political liabilities seem to damage him. Do you have a read on why that is? I think I do. I don't think people ask from Donald Trump consistency in positions. The conservatives say he's liberal. The liberals are worried that he's reactionary. But his supporters want raw emotion. They want a leader. They want uh, anybody that's other than someone sober, judicious, temporizing, which they associate with the Republican leadership, even though they didn't have a lot of choices to stop Obamacare and the the huge debt that was piled up, $10 trillion or so, and the mess in the overseas, and et cetera, et cetera, and immigration. But they want somebody who feels – I don't want to say feels or pain, but they don't find that in the other candidates. And it's, an, it's a class thing, I think. I know if you take a hot-button issue, it's not the most uh, hot-button issue, but it's one of them is the illegal immigration that, that skyrocketed his candidacy. It depends on what your class is. If you're a Republican like Jeb Bush, it's an act of love because your kids go to prep school. You you live in a neighborhood where you – an illegal immigrant is Juan or, or Herlinda doing your dishes or mowing your lawn. But if you live in Madera or you live in Tulare and you're a poor white guy just to take one group or even a third-generation Mexican-American, then illegal immigration means – your son is going to come home with a gang member from Oaxaca after him maybe or he's going to be in a class where 30 percent don't speak English and he's not going to get a quality education or he might go into town and somebody hit him in an intersection and leave the car and flee the scene of the accident without a license registration or try to go to the DMV in Fresno and see what happens when you have to wait hours because there's 500 people lined up to get driver's license who are illegal aliens or go to the Fresno court system or as I just did, try to go and get a license or a passport. Any of those things are, are almost impossible now. So people know that. The lower middle classes know that and they really resent Republican and Democratic grandees patting them on the head and saying, you're a nativist, you're xenophobe, etc. And that anger channels into uh, unqualified, uncensored, unrestricted uh, support for somebody who tells off a Jorge Ramos or Vincente Fox. A lot of the ink that has been spilled over the Trump candidacy has, it seems to me, focused basically on two questions. One, do we understand Donald Trump? And two, do we understand what's happening to the Republican Party? But Victor, I'm, I'm curious with a historian sense of sort of removed from the immediate news cycle – what do you think is happening to the country? When you look at the developments in this campaign, how would you characterize the moment in history that we're inhabiting? Well, he's a reflection of our times. He was created uh, 
we had an African-American, suave, educated version of Donald Trump. So almost anything that you associate negatively with Donald Trump, I can cite you a parallel with Barack Obama, whether it's making fun of the Special Olympics or calling to people to use a gun at a knife fight or for people to get in somebody's faces or to punish your enemies or to wade into current court cases and talk about the race of a particular victim or Soto Santamayor talking about why is Latinas being smarter than white male judges and the way that Trump referenced a Hispanic judge. So there, Trump is a creation of a system that is uh, highly politicized and it's really unsustainable. And I think everybody understands that, that you can't run $20 trillion in debt or you can't have a $500 billion deficit and call that um, budgetary sobriety for very long. And the racial thing is getting out of control so that people see race as essential to their characters. They're hyphenated Americans. And so the defense problem, the educational system, people just, whether they're accurate or not, it's not important. It's the perception that we're in something like the Weimar Republic or you know, I, I think Republican Rome, and then we have a man on a horse that rides in and says, I'm going to make you guys great again. And, it, you know, people say he's like Hitler, he's Mussolini or Philip II of Macedon. But there's a long precedent for somebody who cuts through all of that and promises relief from it. And that's that's where we are. I, as far as the invective the other night on the campaign, I didn't see that much different than what I've seen in American history from what I know about it. The uh, mm. The hatred between Roosevelt and Taft, the hatred between Jackson and John Quincy Adams, or in democracy in general, if I were to pick up a speech of Demosthenes, Trump did not accuse his opponents of running a house of prostitution uh, inside a cemetery, which (laughs) is pretty (laughs) stuff is what you see, or Aristophanes talking about uh, passive homosexuality, et cetera, et cetera. So when he, you know, he referenced his own genitalia, that was right out of classical Athenian democracy. <laughs> so I'm not as shocked as everybody is about the the invective and, and the crudity. That's just the price you pay for raucous democracy. But it, it is true that it's not, we're not in empirical times where these. I, I have a lot of friends who are Trump supporters in my hometown, and you could tell them that. And he said so. He could commit a crime, or you could tell them that Donald Trump was a child molester. They wouldn't care. Because he's their he's their wealthy elite guy that knows the system and is going to destroy it from the inside out on their behalf, so they think. That elite point actually gets us to something that uh, you've addressed in another column. You wrote a column recently in which you pointed out that as a general matter, presidential candidates are usually trying to out log cabin each other. Everybody's yeah. got a different pitch for why they are at heart representative of the common man. Now, obviously that's not true of Donald Trump, but what's really unusual here is that he's not even going through the motions of trying to pretend it is. If anything, he's emphasizing how different he is from your average Joe. Is there can you discern a method in that madness? Yeah, I do. I think that with a Romney or JFK or FDR, wealth was associated with refinement and noblesse oblige. And so the upper classes would stoop down and pat you on the head and say, you know what? I'm I'm not corrupt. I can't be corrupted. I have all this money, but I really feel that after I've made my fortune or inherited it, I'm now interested in social justice, limousine liberals, so to speak. Trump says, I'm knee deep in it. I have a Brooklyn accent. I swear. I walk along the sidewalks. I talk to average people. I, I'm gritty. 
I'm, I put my name in a very crass way. I'm right out, you know, he's right out of Petronius the Satyricon. So, and that reassures the working classes that their wealthy guy is just a guy like them that made a lot of money and he's got the same appetites and obnoxiousness as they do. And they find that reassuring. And, uh, Republican candidates don't, they don't get that. Um, Cruz does a little bit when he, when he tries to talk about the average person and some, sometimes Rubio, but, the rest of them, it never worked with Bush or Christie or any of them, Perry or Walker. They, they're not able to communicate the idea they're furious. When he threw out – I think it, the, the turning point of the campaign was when he threw out Jorge Ramos out of that press conference. And that was the most politically incorrect thing you could do. But then when people saw it and read about Jorge Ramos, they thought, wow, multimillionaire with his kids in prep school. One of them is associated with Hillary Cam- Clinton's campaign. Wow, he fled Mexico because he hated it. Now he's here trashing the country that adopted him and romanticizing the country he fled. And he, he only exists because we have unassimilated illegal aliens that don't know English. And if were the border closed and people would assimilate in two generations, he'd be out of a job. So all that is a context that they'd like when Trump does that to somebody like him. They don't like those type of people. His base doesn't. 35% of the party. Earlier this week, Mitt Romney, the Republicans' 2012 presidential nominee, emerged to give a speech in Utah, essentially denouncing Trump and calling on the party faithful to try and block his path to the nomination. Any value to that message and that messenger? I don't think so. I don't think Trump was right that he's bitter or he wants a presidency, but – he didn't win the presidency and he's talking about a third of the Republican base. It's not some tsunami and he would have been much better to give a talk and not attack Trump personally and just say, you know what, I disagree with Donald Trump to such a degree that I'm doing this extraordinary thing and by giving a lecture to you guys, but you've got to get strategically wise. And two of you have about 25% of the vote each, roughly 23, 25, and then there's these Carson and now Carson's out, but at that time he was in. And then you have Carson and Kasich with maybe 10 to 12. And it, it, do the arithmetic. Some of you are going to have to drop out for the good of the party so that we run 33%, 33%, 33% of the top three. And then the, the two other non-Trump candidates are going to be more alike than different. And that would represent two-thirds of the party. So it's a problem of mathematics, not Donald Trump. When you have 17 candidates that, that ran for president, then something like this – had a high chance of happening. But Trump is a manifestation. He didn't take over the party. He's only got a third of the electorate. But they did this to themselves. And no, everybody has such a big ego. When John Kasich gives pontifications about how he's going to win the nomination, uh, that's ridiculous. All he's doing <laughs> is taking away. Uh, and Cruz and Rubio need to sit down and say, whoever gets the most delegates, I'll support you. And you give me the vice presidency. That's not a backroom deal. It can be open about it. And they would defeat Trump like that. But nobody thinks that he wants to be like the old Aesop's fable about belling the cat. It's good to put a bell on a cat, but nobody wants to go out and put the bell around his neck. I, I want to go back here to a theme that we often revisit on this podcast. While the Republican Party may have a lot of support in the middle of the country, it's tastemakers – overwhelmingly inhabit the same coastal precincts as the progressives and the mainstream media and academe. And with Trump, this seems to have led to a little bit of 
what you will sometimes hear called the, the Pauline Kael effect. That's a, a reference to the New Yorker film critic who said that she didn't know how Nixon had won because no one that she knew voted for him. And that quote's been paraphrased over the years, but the idea is you get insulated when you're in an ideological monoculture. You live in the Central Valley of California, which is politically, economically, sociologically very distinct from Los Angeles or San Francisco. What's the reaction to Trump that you see in your community? Well, I do a lot of local radio shows and I, I talk to a lot of people. I got my hair cut the other day, yesterday actually, with a Hispanic woman who was for Trump. And their attitude is um, they like a leader and he's a jefe if you're Mexican-American. I'm, I'm sure the majority will vote against him, but not all. And working white people that I know, they're overwhelmingly for Trump. And when I'm in the Stanford campus, I ask you, I was there yesterday and I asked how many people were for Trump and they thought they could give me one name among all the Hoover scholars. Mm -hmm. One name. And here I can't find any working white class person who's not for him. And their attitude is they despise wealthy white people because they feel that they're for affirmative action, they're for diversity, but they have the influence or the money or the contacts to leverage their own uh, interest around it. And then they look at them as if they're duck dynasty morons or ice you know, truckers or axemen and they make fun of them. And so Trump doesn't do that. And they that's why they – It's. I, I think the left is right in this regard that it is a white thing. A lot of his lower income support are from white people who are – who are furious and they're not the beneficiaries of anything they get you know you turn look go to a movie and who who's the enemy today it's some guy who's white a white actor with tattoos and either's faking a russian accent or a south african accent or a southern accent and then the who's the good guys it's usually a sophisticated urban metrosexual white guy and his african american pal who's brilliant and then the white guy is always the evil guy. You turn on TV and, and cable news. What do you want? What do you want to look at? Real TV. It's mostly gold miners, Alaska this, Yukon that, best catch, seafarers, and they're all morons. They look like you know, they look like they can't speak or talk, and they're overweight and they're missing teeth. Ha ha ha. Well, people are not stupid. They're very bright, and they, and they don't appreciate that stereotype. And Trump is their is their uh, revenge on. And one last thing, when Obama was nominated, I had a, a friend who drills wells, and I've known him, my, he went to high school with him, and he said, the guy's an SOB, Reverend Wright hates America, he'll end up hating America, he hates people who are not of his race, it's going to be the worst thing in racial relations. And I, I swear he predicted everything based on his empirical reading of human nature. Then I, I, I noticed that Chris Buckley said that Obama had a first-class temperament and would be a great president. David Brooks said because he looked at his pants crease, he could tell that he was not only going to be a president but a good one. And he talked about – I called him up and talked about Burke with him. So what I'm getting at is the Republican white establishment lost their head over – a lot of them did over Obama and the lower classes didn't even though Obama appealed to the lower classes. So I – I don't like the way that some people that I work with in the media and I write with have got this condescending attitude. I don't mind what they say about Trump, but I don't like it when they suggest that an affinity for Trump is a is proof that you're, you know, stupid or naive or worse. 
the final question that I'll put to you. The here and now of the Trump saga can become so all-consuming sometimes that we don't think about it in the long term necessarily. But one of the points that you and I have discussed in a number of podcasts is the vulnerable state of American national security that the next president is going to inherit. If we yep. assume for a moment that in November we're faced with a binary choice between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton as the next president of the United States, what are in your judgment the implications for American national security? Well, I, I'm looking at a person who has no record. Trump is a blank slate and the record that I do know and that is the uh, the graveyard of Libya and lying to the families of the Benghazi dead and the reset with Putin and what China is doing with its fake islands and what's left of the Middle East and withdrawing troops and the Iranian deal. And so I would rather go with Donald Trump, an, a complete unknown, than I would with an unknown disaster, Hillary Clinton, with the full knowledge that almost everybody in the conservative side would not. I just looked at this Yes, you saw that group newsletter from mostly neocons saying that Trump was unacceptable as president because it was foreign policy thing. But when Trump says something about Putin, okay, it's stupid, it's naive. I don't think that means he's going to form an alliance with Vladimir Putin. But uh, what when Hillary Clinton, as Secretary of State, goes over there and takes a red button and even gets the Russian word wrong – and then you know, proclaims that the, the relationship is anew and that George Bush, who was pretty tough on Putin after the uh, Osatia incursion, starts to brag, then uh, that's, that's a far worse as far as I'm concerned. And yet they didn't write any letter about Obama. They didn't write any letter about him. That, that, just to finish, is a theme of the Trump supporter. And I'm not for Trump. I'm not, I, I have never – I wouldn't vote for him in the primary. But that doesn't mean that I wouldn't vote for him over Hillary. And, and so the theme is that uh, you guys are so smart and you hate Trump so much. Okay, well then, where was your opposition to Hillary and where was your opposition to Obama? And if and Trump made fun of a reporter with a physical defect, well, why didn't you come out and say something when Obama ridiculed the Special Olympics or something? And and that's what the that and, and I haven't seen that addressed yet. All right, that's all the time that we have for today. Join us next week for the next installment of the Classicist Podcast. And in the meantime, you can stop by hoover.org where you can read all of Professor Hansen's commentary. We'll see you back here soon. For Victor Davis Hansen and the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.